The scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Please follow along in your bulletin or Bible. For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretexts for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own self, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators to the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of God. Great. Thank you, Jonah. Um, can I invite Al to come up uh, this morning? One of the great things that... Being in the city of Hong Kong and being here amongst some of the other churches is there is a real sense of churches trying to work together. Um, we have been so blessed by many churches ourselves and we've been able to go and engage with other churches in the city. And one of the amazing things this morning is to have Al come to be with us from St. Andrews. Al is the Associate Minister of St. Andrews. Uh, we met, I can't remember when we met, uh, a couple of couple years ago. I just had such an encouraging conversation. Al has just got a real heart for for Christ and for for his people and really shepherding people in his congregation there. And one of the things 
you need to know about Al is apart from the fact that he has a, a, a wife, two kids, and one on the on, one on the way, he's also spent a lot of time in South Africa. Which um, growing up in South Africa, so that's okay. We we're used to that, but we'll forgive you. Um, we'll forgive you for that. Uh, but if you repent of that, that's okay. No problem. Um, but Al's going to come and bring. He's graciously agreed to bring God's word to us this morning. So can I pray for you please, this please. morning, Father? I just want to thank you. That where brothers dwell together in unity, there is your blessing. And Lord, thank you that in this city, there is one church, and it's your church. And we are not part of our own little kingdoms, but it's your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for Al coming this morning. I pray that you would speak to him, speak through him, and speak through him into our hearts, that we would hear your word, that we would be challenged and changed through him, and that we would learn to walk by faith and to be ministers of the gospel as you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Chris. And as, as Chris has said, it's a real joy for me to be here with you this, this morning. It's great that we, we do have a network of churches that work together. I, I did spend quite some time in South Africa. I lived there till I was 15. But as you can tell, the accent has, has come, become a little bit British. So f- forgive me if I'm neither one thing or, or another thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to suggest if, if you could keep open your uh, booklets, that would be great because we'll be having a look at these verses over here. And, uh, over the recent years, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a lot of films about con artists, people who can con, who can talk their way into kind of any situation for their own benefit. So films like The Hustle, Inception, Parasite, Ocean's Eleven and the remake and all of the sequels. One film a bit like that from a few years ago is Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if you remember it. Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio. And DiCaprio was actually playing a real-life figure called Frank Abagnale, who was a notorious con artist from the 60s. So whilst he was still a teenager, he managed to convince people that he was a medical doctor and actually practiced for several months. That's a bit scary. He also managed to pass the bar exam and conduct himself as a lawyer for several months. And he, he, as, well, as well as all of that, he convinced people that he was an aircraft pilot and took loads of flights, and at one stage allegedly even took the controls of a passenger airplane full of people on board. Well, fortunately, he's re- he has repented of his ways. He doesn't con people anymore. He now tries to help firms to avoid being conned. But there is something about these con firms that we, we rather like, don't we? We like hearing about con artists. We probably enjoy less actually meeting con artists, and it's not impossible that, that some of us have met con artists in the sort of wrong kind of situ- situation. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, that is the allegation that is being charged against Paul. That's the background to the whole letter, in a way, that Paul is nothing more than a a con artist. Now, we've been enjoying 1 Thessalonians at St. Andrews. We're just wrapping it up, actually, this Sunday. And so I hope you don't mind me sharing a message from a few weeks ago. And you, you may remember from the book of Acts the situation that Paul... As was often his situation, as often his practice, when he arrived in Thessalonica, he went to the synagogue there and he preached for just three Sundays. And a few people 
became Christians, they accepted Christ. He planted a little fledgling church. But then a mob was rounded up and he had to leave town in a hurry. All of these angry people. And afterwards they went to those young Christians and they said, you can't believe Paul. Paul is nothing more than a trickster, a a charlatan. He's nothing more than a con artist. And this gospel message of his, well, that's just empty words. That's just ideology. That's just a pack of lies. You don't believe that he actually cares about you. He's tramping all over the place, planting churches. It's It's just one big ego trip for him. He's after fame, and he's after your money. I mean, look, he's left town in a a hurry. He's got something to hide. That's the kind of allegations that were coming through. And if If you read the letter through, it's so very clear. And so Paul has to address these. And in chapter 1, he firstly affirms the gospel and the faith of the Thessalonian church. He says with this gospel message, it's not just empty words. No, it's God's power to transform you. And you yourselves are the evidence of that. Just see how you've changed. You've turned from worshipping idols to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and, and wait for him. Your lives are now marked by faith and hope and love. You've even accepted suffering. You bear all of the hallmarks of authenticity. That's chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, with what we're looking at today, Paul turns to himself and he says, And I bear all of the hallmarks of authenticity as well. Now, now Paul isn't trying to boast here, big himself up. No, he's doing it for the sake of the Thessalonians. He knows that if they reject him, then chances are that in the end, they'll reject the gospel as well. And so what we have here is like a little portrait of faithful gospel ministry. Now, Paul isn't saying that he's perfect. In other places, he admits that he's not perfect. But he is saying that he ticks these boxes, these boxes of basic faithfulness. And he wanted the Thessalonians to be able to discern what counted as faithful gospel ministry and what wasn't faithful gospel ministry. And as such, these verses are very helpful for us. You know, we're inundated by people who claim to be Christian leaders. If you go onto the internet, there's no end of people who want you to watch their video and read their blog and buy their book. And some of those teachers are excellent. And sadly, some of those teachers are, are not. And we need to be able to discern what's faithful teaching and what isn't. It's also very helpful for gospel ministers, this passage, that we should reflect on our own ministry and to think, am I doing what the Bible says? But more than that, these marks, these, these things that Christian ministers are meant to do are for us all. You see, the Bible tells us that we're all the ministers. We're all the pastors in the church. Sadly, Kevin, your senior pastor, has been unwell. We've been praying for him. Praise the Lord that he's, he's on the mend. But he's not the only pastor here. Nor is just Chris or Henrique or Jeremy or the rest of the staff team. No, the Bible says if we're Christian, then we're all the pastors. We're all the ministers. And so we should all be doing these things. So whether we're in Sunday school or helping to lead a community group or whether we're a parent teaching our children or whether we're just one ordinary Christian trying to encourage another ordinary Christian, these are things that we should all do, all aspire to do. We won't do them perfectly, but these are things that we should do. Now we're going to split our passage up into three. Forgive me, I am a kind of three-point sermon guy, so we've got three points this, sermon, this, this morning. I'm sorry about that. 
Three points. Firstly, right motives. Right motives. So have a look with me at verse 1. Paul says, remember back to how we lived amongst you. And he uses this phrase again and again, you know. You know how we lived. Verse 1. But you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he's saying, remember back to what happened. We arrived in your city and we'd just come from Philippi. In Philippi, Paul had preached the gospel and he'd been opposed. An angry crowd tried to take hold of him. The city officials, they arrested Paul, but instead of protecting him from the crowd, they unlawfully beat him and threw him into prison. Eventually, he managed to extricate himself from prison, but that didn't stop him. Then he went on to Thessalonica, and he was opposed there. He had to leave in a hurry. Next, he went to Berea. Again, he was opposed and had to leave in a hurry. Then he went on to Athens. His message was mainly rejected. Eventually, he found himself in the city of Corinth, where he was writing this letter from. And he's saying, remember how our lives were. We weren't doing it for fame and glory and money. No, it was highly inconvenient for us sharing the gospel with you. And that shows that our motives were right. See what he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. He's saying, look, we never did any of that con artist stuff. We never used flattery to get into your good books. We never put on a mask to hide greed in our hearts because we were after your stuff. No, we weren't trying to please ourselves or to please others or even really firstly to please you. No, as custodians of the gospel, firstly, we were seeking to please the Lord, not con artists. One of the most infamous con artists in the animal kingdom, if you can call it that, is the anglerfish. I don't know if you know about anglerfish. I'm at the, at the stage where my oldest daughter is three, or three years old, so I'm always showing her pictures of animals and things. And the anglerfish is this rather grotesque fish that lives in the murky depths of the ocean where there's hardly any light at all. And it's got this bulbous protrusion that comes off that someone's not in. You know what I'm talking about, at least. Or the top of its head, which glows in the light. And the, the little fish are attracted to this, and they, they swim up to it. And then it just swallows them with one big gulp. Fortunately, it's only this big, so you don't have to worry too much about the anglerfish. But there's almost a, a sense in which some gospel ministers are sadly a bit like that. They're, they're holding out the light of the gospel in a dark world. And people are attracted to that, but their intention all along is to exploit those people. And so we hear about ministers who, who are after money. They're stolen from their church. They're paying themselves huge salaries. They've got luxury cars and, and private jets. Meanwhile, their congregation is impoverished after money or after fame. They've turned ministry into a vehicle for self-promotion. It's all about them and what they're doing and their latest CD and their latest book. And Paul here is defending himself against that. He's saying, look, I really wasn't that kind of con artist Christian minister. I, I really wasn't. Just remember to how I lived amongst you. You know, 
It wasn't like that. It had the right motives. Right motives. And I, I think this reminder about having right motives in what we do is so important. It's, it's so easy, if you're anything like me, it's so easy to do what seems to be the right thing for the wrong reasons. Now, we'll never have perfect motivation because we have a sinful nature. We can't wait until our motives are perfect before we do something because otherwise we'll never do it. But we do need to work on our motivation. And, and I, need, I need to be reminded that sometimes at church, it's so easy first to be thinking about what other people think about what we're doing, whether that's in the music team or whether we're serving in kids' zone or Sunday school, to be thinking about other people and, and to want their affirmation. It's not wrong to want to please others, but we need to remind ourselves we're doing this firstly to, to serve the Lord, to please Him. The same is true in evangelism. We know that we should be doing evangelism, and it's possible to do that in a way to please ourselves, just so that we get it off our conscience. Phew, I've, I've told them I can rest now. Or to convince other people that we're keen. Other Christians can see that we're bringing our friends to, to church and that we're a keen Christian. But we should be doing evangelism firstly to serve the Lord and to please Him. Equally, wrong motivation can keep us from service. For instance, if we firstly are thinking about serving our boss and getting ahead in our career, then we might be quite reluctant to take on additional responsibility at church because it might get in the way. Or if we're seeking to please ourselves, if someone asks us to take on a role on the welcome team or the AV, we might think, well, this is quite menial and, and inconvenient. I don't really want to do it. Well, gospel ministry wasn't convenient for Paul. But he was willing to do it because he had the right motives inspired through the gospel and what Jesus had done for him. Right motives and secondly, right methods. So Paul says, well, I, I was an apostle, and I, I could have made demands of you, but I didn't live like that. Instead, verse 7, have a look with me. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Well, Paul is, is making an analogy here, saying that he's like a mother. And mothers, I think, are, are really the epitome of caring. That's true, isn't it? And I see that very much firsthand in my wife. As, as Chris has said, we've got a little girl who's three and one who's one and another little girl who's coming in October. We're absolutely thrilled by that. It is quite an exhausting phase of life, and a lot of that falls on the mum. Now, obviously, dads have to do their part, but there, there's some things that dads can't easily do. And so the mums are the ones who end up doing a, a lot of it, and they just keep on giving and giving and giving. And I see that in my wife, just the, the epitome of caring. And, and Paul is making this comparison here. Now, I don't think that we need to misunderstand him. He isn't trying to claim motherhood for himself. He's not trying to say that he understands all women. He's just using an image that most people can understand. And he's saying, look, we cared for you. We didn't want to be a burden at all. We weren't. But so often Paul would get a job as a tent maker or repairing tents, and he's saying, look, rem remember how we lived amongst you. 
During the day, we were working hard, repairing and, and making those tents. And then in the evening, we'd come and we'd tell you about Jesus. And we'd do a Bible study. And we'd pray together. And we'd be there late in the evening, then up in the early morning, re- repairing those tents. And all the while, we were opposed and sometimes even fearing for our lives. But through it all, it was worth it because we really cared about you. Like a mother and also like a father. See what he says. In verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children we exalted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now again, I don't think Paul is trying to promote gender stereotypes. He's just saying that in the average family, so often the mother is a bit more gentle and the father is often, but not always, a bit more stern, often in a helpful way. And he's saying, we were a bit like a dad to you. We set you an example through our conduct, through our our speech. And we wanted the best for you. We didn't pander to you. No, we were willing to have that slightly more difficult conversation because we wanted you to really live for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a kind of honesty and straightforwardness. Gentleness on the one hand and honesty and, and straightforwardness. And sometimes those things are, are lacking from Christian leadership. There can be a, a lack of gentleness. Some Christian leaders are, are so determined in their zeal to build the kingdom that they become quite authoritarian and domineering in order to get things done. And that might work in the short term, but in the end it always leaves a, a trail of destruction. And sadly, over recent years, there's been a number of high-profile pastors who've had to step down from their ministry amongst allegations of bullying and abuse. Now, that is absolutely scandalous. A Christian leader should not be a bully. Paul was not a bully. Christian leaders should be gentle. Gentle, but also honest and forthright. Some Christian leaders are so scared about upsetting anyone that they're not willing to say to anyone, hey, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be doing those things. But for Paul, the the gentleness and the forthrightness went hand in hand. That's how it works for Christians. Gentleness and forthrightness go hand in hand. Paul was willing to get emotionally involved in the lives of these individuals. Not a kind of professionalism, keeping them at arm's length. No, he says, we loved you so much that we were willing to share our lives, our very selves, getting emotionally involved. Now, I I think that's a big challenge for us here in Hong Kong, getting emotionally involved. You know, we, we lived in a city that's just packed with people. And so many of those people are stressed and angry and, and tired and don't have much energy, and we're stressed and, and tired and without much energy. And it's easy for us to say to ourselves, well, if I had more time and energy and more emotional resources, then maybe I could help, but I just don't have it in me to, de- within me to deal with all of the stuff that's going on in other people's lives at the moment. Well, brothers and sisters, the Christian way is to get involved, to get emotionally involved in other people's lives. Now, obviously, we all have our limits. and In a larger congregation like this, we can't get to know everyone, which is why I think our our small groups are so important. And at St. Andrews, we're always saying, join, we call them growth groups there, join a growth group, join a growth group, join a growth group. It's because in these smaller groups, we're able to study the Bible and pray. But more than that, to really get to know each other 
and support each other. So that if we hear that someone in our community group is going through a rough patch, well, we pray for them, but more than that, we ring them up and we say, hey, how are you doing? Can I take you out for lunch? Can we go out for coffee? What can I do to help you? Because we really care. And if we hear that someone in our community group is maybe making a bad decision or falling into some kind of sin, then we don't ignore it. We don't bulldoze them. No, we're gentle. But we don't do nothing at all. Instead, we get in touch with them. And we say, brother, sister, I I care about you very much, but these are the reasons why I think this may not be the right course of action. And these are the verses in the Bible that say that maybe this is not the right thing to do. And we're willing to have that conversation and the potential pushback that we might receive in it because we care about that person. Right motives, right methods, and finally, right message. Well, Paul is talking about a gospel message here, which is not his own. Look with me at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Believers say, he repeats word, word, word. It's not his word, it's the Lord's word. And it's a a word which is opposed. See what he says in verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Paul is making the point here that from beginning to end, this message was opposed. Now, he mentions the Jews, not because he's anti-Semitic, of course. He's a Jew himself. He has a deep love for the Jewish people. But he's making this point that from beginning to end, this gospel message was opposed. It was first preached in Jerusalem, and there was opposition. That message spread all over the place. And now, even in Thessalonica, there was opposition even from their own countrymen. That is what the Thessalonians had experienced. So opposition and and suffering was intrinsic, is intrinsic to the gospel message. And isn't that what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ was opposed. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died when he bled on the cross in order to bring God's love into this broken world, in order that we might receive his forgiveness. And if you're here and you're still exploring the Christian faith, then all you need to do to receive God's forgiveness for sins that our shame might be, might be washed away, is to say, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in your suffering in my place. That's all we have to pray, and our sins are washed away. But even as we receive Christ, the Bible says that we also need to submit to Christ's authority, that we need to pick up our cross daily. And that leads us inevitably into a path of opposition and even of suffering. Now, that aspect of the gospel is often deeply unpopular today, and sometimes people want to minimize it and even to deny it. So take, for instance, two ways in which that sometimes happens. Liberal theology. Amongst other things, I think liberal theology often says, well, you don't need conflict in the Christian life. The main thing is that we're a nice person and that we get on with everyone else. And don't worry too much about doctrines and the miracles and other religions and the resurrection and and things like that. It doesn't matter exactly what you believe. So long as you're a nice person, we don't need conflict. 
liberal theology. Or another, another form of false teaching is prosperity gospel, which in, in many ways says we don't need suffering in this world. That God loves this world and he wants to bring an, an end to pain, which is true, but, but that we can have that now. If we just believe and trust, then he'll give us healing and he'll give us health and wealth and self-actualization and, and we can receive all of our dreams now. We don't have to have suffering in this world. Well, those two forms of teaching are at variance with the Apostle Paul's personal experience and so clearly with the verses that we've been looking at this morning. And it's important that we as Christians are able to discern that. You know, sometimes people come up to me at St. Andrews and they say, Oh, Pastor Al, I was watching YouTube last week and there was a brilliant guy on that and I watch him every week and you should really watch him too, you'll love him. And then they mention the name of the person and my heart sinks because it's a well-known prosperity gospel preacher or liberal theologian. And just because someone holds a Bible and smiles and tells a few nice stories and is emotionally engaging doesn't make them faithful. We need to be able to discern what's faithful ministry and what's not. Of course, I'm not talking about Watermark yet. <laughs> the, the ministry here is very faithful. I mean more what's out there on the internet and in the books that we read. Now, Paul was that kind of faithful minister. Even through the opposition, even through the persecution, he went to Thessalonica, and the Lord used him to richly bless those Christians there. He told them about Jesus. He led them to Christ. He nurtured them. He discipled them. He wrote to them. He prayed for them. He sent other Christians to look after them, and it was a wonderful thing. Now, we haven't had the privilege of being led to Christ by an apostle. But if you're a Christian here today, then the Lord would have used someone in your life in order to richly bless you. And I want to ask, who is, the, who is that person and who are those people? Just think back. Well, I can think of many people in my life like that. Take, for instance, a, a few, just to, just to mention. Take, for instance, my, my parents. My parents would describe themselves as ordinary people and ordinary Christians. But every single Sunday they went to church. And every single morning they got up a little bit early in order to read the Bible and pray. And as a young person, that made an enormous impact on me. Or take, for instance, my youth group. When we immigrated from South Africa to the UK, I was a confused Christian teenager trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian in, in a foreign culture. And having a youth group to journey alongside me was profoundly helpful during that time. Or when I was at university, I arrived at university, not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And it was really, really, really helpful when an older Christian from the local church met up with me for about six months in order to read the Bible and pray. And that started to change the whole trajectory of my life as I began to think more seriously about Christian ministry. Now, my hunch is that you probably have people like that in your life as well. Everyday people, ordinary people, broken people, sinful people, but people who nevertheless the Lord has used to bless you richly. And I think part of the challenge of this passage is whether we're willing to be that kind of person to the people whom God has put in our lives and to the people whom God has put in the room around us. Now we might feel like we don't have much time or that we don't have much experience, or that we're the wrong kind of character. Well, remember the Apostle Paul, he was completely the wrong kind of character. 
And the Lord turned his life around and used him to richly bless others. The Lord can use you to richly bless others. And what we see in this passage is a little portrait of how we go about doing that. Right motives. Not seeking to please others first, but seeking to please the Lord. Right methods. Being gentle, but also honest. Right message. Sticking faithfully to that good news of Jesus Christ, despite opposition and suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your rich goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he suffered and died, that we might have forgiveness and new life and renewal. And thank you that you bring that renewal through everyday, ordinary, broken people. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and the way that you used him to bless that church in Thessalonica. Thank you for the ways in which you've used people in our lives to bless us and strengthen us in our walk. And help us, we pray, and show us how we can do that and be used by you to bless others. Amen.